Good morning. This morning I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. You can find it in your pew Bible on page 815. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. If I were to <clears throat> mention the name Bono, how many of y'all would know of whom I speak? Raise your hand, please. <laughs> more in this service than in the first. <laughs> I actually had somebody come up and say, oh, didn't you have that show with Cher? You know, they were married. If you're over 50, you know what I'm talking about. So, No, not that one. Uh, it was interesting, not long ago, Bono was interviewed by this uh, British reporter, and it was interesting because you can tell the British reporter really wants to pin him down, you know, as to what he believes about Jesus, and I think the reporter was kind of taken aback by how straight up uh, Bono is about it, but I'll give you a chance to decide whether or not he's pretty straight up about it. Let, let's show that. What or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, a, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. So he either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson-type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think... therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, I have no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. So you really believe 
Could you be a little more specific, Bono? Uh, I think he's pretty straight up about that. But what does Bono know? He's a rock star. He's a philanthropist, social activist. But what does he know? Well, he knows enough. He knows enough to know that the gospel is not just good news. It is true news. It's not mere blind faith. And analyzing the evidence will convince you of that. Some of what I'm going to do in the first part of this might be review for some of you who have been in that equipping group that I recently led, but I think it's worth revisiting, uh, always worth revisiting, I think. When we look at some of the evidence, if you look at the Guinness Book of World Records, you'll learn about Sir Lionel Luckhu, because he's under the category of most successful attorney of all time. By January of 1985, he succeeded in 245 straight murder acquittals, murder acquittals, whether by jury or by appeal. 245 straight. Nobody on the planet has ever been able to do anything close to that. So here's a world-class expert who knows a lot about reliable, admissible, persuasive evidence. And what he decided to do was to see, uh, by applying his own expertise in the legal realm, if he could prove or disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And And he submitted it all to legal evidence. And this is what he concluded. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Here's the most successful attorney of all time, at least based on Guinness' book, uh, and he applies all these legal tests to see if the historicity of Jesus' resurrection stands up, and indeed it does, and he does that with absolute confidence. Actually, out of that, Sir Lionel Luck, who became a Christ follower, he had not been previously. Well, are you convinced But more importantly, have you taken a stand? You know, some of us are very familiar. Somebody showed me a copy of theirs after the first service of an older book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And it's a thick book, and he uses a lot of the time in there to defend the historical resurrection of Jesus, which is great and all. Evidence that demands a verdict. But I think it's also evidence that demands faithfulness. By that I mean you can be convinced of it, but have you given your heart, soul, and mind over to this good news? to where you dare to step out, step across that line, and be a Christ follower. It could well be that there's someone in here who has not taken the time yet to do that. I think it's put very well with the first two verses that Catherine read just a moment ago. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. It is that on which you stand. As, as Bono said, it's the defining question. And either you believe it and go full throttle or you don't. He said, you know, you can't be let off easy either way. Paul goes on in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. Well, that seems to mean that it is the most important question in human existence. By this you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, your life is in vain. Is that where you are? Is that what you believe? And are you giving yourself full throttle to that? Because it demands not just being convinced of it, but being faithful to it. So have you taken a stand? Well, what helps convince us historically that this did happen? Uh, First of all, and I'm just going to go through a few of them. Some of you are familiar with them, but it doesn't hurt to review them. First of all, the empty tomb, I think, is one that's a powerful, powerful uh, evidence. Because, again, even the opponents of Jesus from the first century until now acknowledge the empty tomb. Do you follow me on that? The earliest ancient Jewish polemics, a polemic is... Is, it's not just even an apologetic where you're defending something. You're attacking some belief. Well, the earliest Jewish polemics against the resurrection of Jesus presuppose an empty tomb. They all go with the starting point that, yes, we acknowledge that the tomb was empty, but 
And by the way, what are the three, <laughs> what are the three buts that people go with more than any when they try to refute the resurrection? Do you know these? Uh, one of these is the conspiracy theory that the disciples indeed went and, and stole the body, which I find hard to believe given their uh, present predisposition at that time of being utterly fearful. Uh, not, not just that, but you had the Roman custodian who were guarding the tomb. Uh, you had 12 to 16 Green Beret-type type, uh, hosses there guarding the tomb, and you had the seal around it, which is like our yellow uh, crime tape, you know, and if you went beyond any of that or broke that seal, they had to kill you. Uh, well, maybe the custodia, you know, maybe they all actually fell asleep. If you fell asleep on duty and you were a member of the Roman custodia representing the Roman Empire and you fell asleep, you would be burned on your uniform along with flammable liquid on top of you. You know, you, know, you don't want that to happen. It's, it's hard to fathom that that actually occurred. Then you have the wrong tomb theory, that it was so dark that the women, you know, got there before dawn and they went to the wrong tomb because they really couldn't see. Well, they see a gardener out there. Now, let me just say, I know that now, you know, in farms you have combines that, that have headlights and you can actually work at night out in the field. How many of y'all know what a combine is? Richard Smith, I know you do. Okay. Is, is uh, the Sanford boy, is, is Ann's boy? Oh, no, he's a first hour. Okay. You know, if, if, if you know that, you, you know a little bit about agricultural life. But anyway, you know, back then they didn't have anything like that. If you're the gardener, it's already light. No doubt they knew where the tomb was. They saw him <laughs> buried in there the other day. So you have that going on. Couldn't have gone to the wrong tomb. And even after daybreak comes along, uh, John and Peter go to that grave. And they knew what grave it was. Uh, and then later on, other people went to it. So it was clear that it couldn't have been the wrong tomb. The most <laughs> prominent theory of the three, which I find fascinating. It's based on uh, a book called The Passover Plot from the 1960s, which even secular historians just shred because there's not, a, there's not an ounce of historical uh, documentation that is reliable to it. But nevertheless, this is the primary theme, which is the, does anybody know it? The swoon theory. Does anybody know the swoon theory? It's, not, it's that Jesus did not actually perish on the cross, but that he did what? Anybody know? Blacked out, fainted. And, and so he blacked out, and later on when he was in that, that uh, cold, damp tomb, he was revived and somehow got out. Uh, he had been flogged 39 times. He's nailed to a cross. He's asphyxiating there for literally hours. Uh, uh, later on, after he, it seems, dies, uh, they run a spear through him because that's what Roman guards did to assure, to confirm that they were dead because they had to know whether or not there was actual confirmation of the death to be able to report that to Pilate and the authorities. And so you also, he would have been wrapped and encased in a mummified kind of form where you had that gooey myrrh substance that you would rub all over the a dead body, and it was at least an inch thick, and it would add at least 100 pounds to you. So somehow he was able to wake up, get out of that in that horrible physical state that he had been in, somehow move the rock or find another way out. And Again, they don't seem to hold up. Uh, so you try to refute the empty tomb that people presuppose is there, there's not been a theory or, or any other type of convincing argument other than it was empty and something had to have happened beyond one of these theories. Secondly, the inability of the Roman leaders and Jewish leaders to just to produce the body. That would have been the easiest thing to do. If the tomb is empty, go in there and pull out the corpse. They could not do that. As one historian of the first century said, they were strangely, mysteriously silent on the matter. Thirdly, obviously the change in the disciples from these frightened grieving, self-concerned people to these bold proclaimers of the gospel to the point that they were in dire, dire straits. 
I mean, they did this at greatest of risks. Indeed, most all of them were martyred, if not all of them. I've heard some people say, well, maybe they were brainwashed, kind of like in a cult. Or or maybe they were just trying to save face, okay? Uh, Would they die for something that they knew was untrue? That's the difference between the disciples and I would say someone who's been brainwashed in a cult or in an extreme terrorist group like we see today. People will die for some religious belief that they are convinced is true. They will not die for a religious belief that they know is false. They won't do that. In other words, as someone said, who would die for a lie? That's just not going to do it. But they knew it was true, therefore they were willing to die for it and knew that it wasn't a lie. Well, maybe the disciples conspired to cook up a legend. Let's just do, maybe they just, whether to save face or maybe they could become powerful leaders out of it, at least they thought they could. If they wanted to cook this up as a conspiracy, cons, let's say a, a conspired cover-up, let's call it that, you would have to have had at least 15 people, uh, the 11 remaining disciples, Cleopas who saw him on the Emmaus Road, the three women who first saw the risen Christ, and Joseph of Arimathea. Now, that's around 15, 16 people. Now, they would have had to have engaged in a lifelong conspiracy of cover-up that lasted decades and never, never crumbled. It's kind of hard to believe. I just base it on the, the personalities of these guys. Could they have really pulled it off? You've got Peter who's so impetuous. You've got John who's this mystic. You've got uh, James and John who are so ambitious. You've got Matthew who's more of a pragmatist who's going to try to get people back to common sense. You've got Philip who was kind of slow. You've got, you've got Thomas who was a skeptic. I don't think these guys could have gotten together and conceived any plot, let alone pulled it off just because of who they were. I like what Charles Colson said when he compared the Watergate scandal, the Watergate cover-up, to what would have been a resurrection scandal cover-up. He said it only took a number of days for John Dean to come along and say, you know what, Uh, there's a scandal on the presidency, there's a cancer on it, and he wound up fessing up saying, you know, this is a cover-up. You know, it would have had to have lasted decades for at least 15 people, but, but look at the biblical text. Over 500 people would have had to engage in it, and not one of them crumble and say, you know what, it's all untrue. You know, do you think every follower would, would have stirred would have stood firm for decades had it not happened. A lot of people like to talk about the conversion of of Saul of Tarsus because he had once been persecuting the church, or even James, who's the brother of Jesus, because he was embarrassed by Jesus. Read the gospel record. They didn't know what to do with him, uh, brothers and sisters. They, they, They were ashamed of him, it appears to be. But I love even more the witness of many eyewitnesses. You know, Paul, when he's defending the faith to Festus in Acts 26, 26, says to Festus, Festus, this did not happen in a corner. And what he is saying is, this didn't happen in some obscure place that was just me. There were 500 people who saw him, and saw him over the course of many days from Jerusalem all the way to Galilee. Add that to what I would say is the witness of reliable documentation of so many ancient documents that confirm all of this. You know, you could take... um, uh, you know, we know that uh, Thucydides wrote the uh, history of the Peloponnesian War. We know that Xenophon wrote the Anabasis, which uh, talks about uh, uh, Cyrus the Younger's expedition across the, the Persian Empire to try to overcome and, and, and wrestle uh, the, the Persian Empire from Artaxerxes. We know, or at least we accept the fact that uh, Caesar wrote about the Gaelic Wars. You could put all of the ancient documents that point to those different writings, and it doesn't come close to the amount of documentation we have of the resurrection of Jesus. This book is a much more reliable historical document than all those put together based on historical witness of documentation. 
doesn't come close. Plus, you have this corroborated evidence of eyewitnesses. Only Caesar wrote his piece. Only Xenophon wrote his. Only Thucydides wrote his. You have multiple, multiple cooperative evidence from eyewitnesses. Some like to talk about Sunday as the day of Christian worship. What if I were to announce at the benediction, which I might do, that we're no longer going to worship on Sunday morning, but we're going to worship on Mondays at noon. Go in peace. Um, If I were to do that, that would seem very strange. That's precisely what happened because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Ancient Hebrews did not have a two-day weekend like you and I have. They had a six-day work week and then the Sabbath, Saturday, to go and worship. And everything, you know led to that. Suddenly, the first day of the week, Sunday, it shifts. And those who were Jewish who are now Christian are worshiping on that day. Why? Why did they have this monumental shift that was centuries old, this practice of worshiping on the Sabbath? Simply because they knew that he had risen on this day and it constituted this incredible shift. They wouldn't have done that unless they really knew and saw and believed and confirmed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Well, maybe this was a myth that was generated, okay? Uh, get with some historians and see that the rate, of, of the rate at which uh, mythical or legendary material comes into and accrues in historical documents, it takes two generations, eh, I don't know, 50 years or so. So two generations for that to do that when uh, ancient documents are corrupted by myth or by legend. Okay, I find that interesting because... You take this book, you take uh, the gospel record, the resurrection of Jesus can be traced based on documentation to about 24 to 36 months after the actual event occurred. Compare that to uh, the biographies of Alexander the Great that are considered the earliest ones and the most credible. They were written 400 years 400 years after Alexander's death. They were written by Arian and Plutarch. They were written 400 years after Alexander's death. And yet we accept those as as authoritative, as reliable, except the fact that you had historical scholars throughout the years go in and sift out and edit out those parts of it that did become legendary. Clearly, even in those original documents that were 400 years after Alexander died, there was legendary material. They had to edit it out. You can trace the resurrection of Jesus based on actually this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and others to within 24 to 36 Months of Jesus' death and resurrection. There's no time. You cannot, you cannot logically say that mythical and legendary material accrued within those documents. You just can't. That, that's, that's impossible. I wasn't even going to bring this one up, but I saw something on Facebook uh, the other day by a lovable agnostic who tried to refute it with this one, which was the eyewitnesses were hallucinating. Okay. I'm just going to read from the American Medical Association book. Uh, William Adams, you can check me on this later, okay? Uh, And this is basically the definition that you have in the DSM manual. Anybody know what that is? The Diagnostic Statistical Manual. Lawyers need to know about that. Psychologists, counselors. Uh, Larry Dennis, if he's here, would know about that. Here's the definition of hallucinations. Hallucinations are, and I quote, false or distorted sensory experiences that appear to be real perceptions. These sensory impressions are generated by the mind rather than any external stimuli. They're not generated by anything external. They are internal. Hallucinations are like dreams. They are individualized phenomena. They can't be shared by more than one person. They can't be sh- which is why psychologist Gary Collins said, and I quote, if you had 500 people all having the same hallucination at the same time, that would be a bigger miracle than the resurrection itself. And he's right. It wasn't all at the same time. That's the whole thing. It wasn't a common hallucination at the same time. That, that doesn't fit the uh, definition of hallucination. Also, 
people saw Jesus over the course of 40 days, from Jerusalem all the way up to Galilee. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fit. Let me just offer up one more, which means a lot to me, and it's Jesus' own predictions about his resurrection. Is he whom he claimed to be, or is he, as I love Bono's word, what did he say, a nutter? A nutter. He's, he's either who he said he was, or he's a nutter. To quote C.S. Lewis, he's either Lord, or he's what? A lunatic. He's either whom he claimed to be, or he's delusional. Bless his heart. And the thing is, you can't, you can't, you know, look at the Gospels and read it selectively and edit it out yourself. You cannot do that. Uh, you can't say, you know, he, you know, he was a great teacher, he was very wise and everything. No, he claimed to be the Son of God. You've got to deal with that and embrace it or not, but, but one or the other. There's more than enough to convince as to the historicity of Jesus, but it's not just evidence that demands a verdict again. It demands faithfulness. It, it demands us taking that extra step of running to him in faith. And, and because, because of its truthfulness, you don't have to die, bottom line. You don't have to die if you run to him, when I, when I mention running, I've got to talk about uh, Stanley. Uh, how many of y'all have been to Cape Town, South Africa on the Living Hope thing? Okay, y'all know who I'm talking about with Stanley. Caleb is good friends. Of course, Caleb's considered a Living Hope worker down there. Don't, don't go there. I'm afraid they're going to steal him one day. Um, he, th- Stanley became good friends with Bill Wad last time we were down there uh, last summer. Stanley's an amazing, amazing guy. He works with um, all these kids in one of these shanty towns. I know that Masapumalele, where we were, it's supposed to hold only 5,000 people. There's 20, 27,000 people there. I think Stanley works at Capricorn, right, which is another township. Just, just um, poverty the likes of which we don't see even in the worst part of Birmingham or New York City or whatever. You just can't even begin to imagine it. And that's where Stanley works because that's where he grew up. But uh, he was originally a drug runner. He was a fast runner. I forget. I think he had a nickname. I can't remember, but he was a fast runner. And so he would take money from uh, the drug dealers and take them back over to the drug lords. And so uh, one day, though, he got some money from the drug dealers and, and started running. And then he realized, wow, there's a lot of money right here. And he actually kept it. He had things to pay for all this, so he kept it. And, and just absconded with the money, left for a time, and uh, thought things had cooled down after a number of days, comes back into the township, things had not cooled down, the drug lords find him, uh, one of his friends actually outed him and told him where he was, kind of betrayed him, and he winds up on this living room floor uh, with a gun to his head, hands tied behind his back, okay, and the guy just presses this gun against his head and says, you're going to die. At that moment, uh, the guy with the gun, his child comes into the room and is kind of traumatized by what the child sees. And so the guy with the gun goes over and tries to comfort the child for just a second. When they do that, the guy who turned uh, Stanley in had a prick of conscience. He goes over and, and cuts him loose, and Stanley goes running, goes out the back door, goes down the little steps there, and starts to run because he's a fast runner, falls right into a hole. A, a hole. And, and he has to... He's down there for just a second, but he scrambles out and keeps running, and he escapes. Now, he wasn't a believer, obviously, at that point. Later on, and I wish we had time to talk about this amazing conversion experience he had and and his amazing commitment to his ministry there through Living Hope. But bottom line, he came to find out later from that friend who had the prick of conscience and who set him free, you know what that hole was? That is where they were going to bury him after they executed him. That's where they were going to bury him. You see where we're going with that, don't you? (laughs) 
I mean, I mean and, and, and on one sense, on an economic level, on a physical level, you could say, oh, there but for the grace of God go I. I could be like Stanley. I could be growing up poor. I could be in a drug-infested area. I could be this and that. There but for the grace of God go I. I, I, could, I could be in that kind of condition. You still might be in that condition spiritually if you have not made that step from, okay, I'm convinced enough maybe Jesus is who he said he is, making that move toward him. Climbing out of that hole and running to him, if you will. Maybe this is the day for you to do just that. Because the truthfulness of the gospel can set you free from the reality of death to the reality of eternal life. Is that not worth it? And eternal life begins now. That's what's so great about it. Because of the resurrection, you can get through anything now. Any obstacle, you know, any struggle, any relational issue, any, any doubts you might have, any confusion, any fears you might have. You can get through those. And I'm going to close with a story. It's kind of become a tradition now in the last few years. Some of you have heard it. Some of you might not have. And, and, and I, got, I, I received one text this morning. Let me see if I can find it real quick. From one person. I'm going to call him Mark. That's not his name because I don't like him to embarrass him. But uh, Mark I had as a student a number of semesters ago. And things just weren't going well for him in a given semester. And he would let me know about it by text. I was being very pastoral, oh, here, here's, my, here's my cell phone number because I'm pastoral and I want to be there for you all the time. I felt really holy, you know, it was great. He took advantage of it. And uh, I would get a text at least once a week, Dr. Barnett, she still won't go out with me. Oh, well, but God loves you, send, you know. Uh, Dr. Barnett, I failed history. Well, God is the Lord of history, you know. Dr. Barnett, my car battery died. Yes, but you will never die, send, you know. Uh, Dr. Barnett, I got a traffic ticket today. Oh, you're free from the law with Christ. And I, well, you know, and every week, and, and, and I really would, I would try to do the, pa- the pastoral thing. But after a number of weeks of that, I lost patience. <laughs> and he texted me, she still won't go out with me. And I'll never forget. I just thought, it just in a moment of frustration. I'm not as patient as you, Tim. In a moment of frustration, I just typed out two words and sent it, and I regret it immediately after, but but two words. Can anybody help me? Anybody know? Tomb's empty. And I sent that and immediately felt terrible. I felt so guilty. I thought, oh, what what, what am I? I'm a minister. Come on. You've got to be there for him no matter what. And so I started typing out an apology, but you know how you can um, uh, see the little bubble? Oh, he's typing something back. You know what I'm talking about? But I see the bubble, so I thought, I'm going to wait, but I, I really need to apologize. This guy's probably going to be upset and everything. I get back, bah, ha, 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 bah, ha, Dr. Barnett, that's great, that's great. The tomb is empty, it is empty, that's awesome. And so for the rest of the semester, at least once a week, I'd get, well, I broke up with her after just one week, but tomb's empty. <laughs> Battery's dead, but... but Tomb's empty. I don't know if I'm a Calvinist or an Arminian, but doesn't it? Tomb's empty. I don't know what I'm doing this summer, but tomb's empty. No matter what I go through, no matter what you go through in life, the good news is what? Amen. Let's pray. Indeed it is, O God, and so we have reason to give the deepest of thanks, the most humble of thanks. Because of it, life goes on. Life goes on in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. 
It moves to a life that is so good, (laughs) the likes of which we cannot even begin to imagine. Indeed, the biblical writers tried to describe how great it is, but it's even beyond that, no doubt. So we give you thanks for this best of news. We give you praise and celebration and glory at this moment. Lord, if anybody in here has never really taken that added step of really professing faith in you, not just being convinced by it, but giving their hearts over to you, that they might follow you, that you might be their not only Savior and Lord, that they would, they, they would be your followers, your submissive followers. We pray that they would do just that at this point of decision. Pray these things in your name. Amen.